Hello and thanks for tuning in. This is the radio ministry of Grace Community Church in Jefferson City, Missouri. Please open up your Bibles and join us. Here's Pastor Dennis Helton. We've been doing the Westminster Confession or the Congregational uh, Confession. That's, that happens to be associated with us, which are really uh, uh, very close to the same thing. Uh, in the first chapter, which we did uh, a couple of weeks ago of, of the Confession, it revealed um, that God is seen through the light of nature, right? And he's seen through uh, direct revelation, through the Word of God. And we know that by nature, that's a good way that God shows um, some of his attributes, uh, a little bit of his nature in a sense, but it is not the way of salvation, is it? And the Word of God is what is specific to uh, salvation. And so the reason the, the, the writers of the confession originally, they placed this chapter on God uh, where it was at it, as like the second chapter and the first chapter are the scriptures. I think to us it would make sense why you would start with scriptures because you really can't know who God is unless you read scripture first. And of course, I think that was probably the, the biggest reason. How can you personally know God except through uh, his revealed uh, direct revelation, his truth there? Uh, the information that we have in the next chapter then uh, in that confession on God and the Holy Trinity, that's what we're calling uh, uh, this because that's what the second chapter is. In uh, the, uh, uh, con uh, the other one that we're going to be looking at that I think that is going to be up on the board, it shows part three. Uh, he had a, a first chapter, Zach, put in front of that. Uh, but anyway... Um, this, this particular chapter is drawing from the biblical revelation with the basis of the scripture there. Uh, then we can uh, proceed on to see who uh, God is. And uh, last week, we got a really good setup. Uh, Alan, thank you very much for uh, giving us a foundation of the formulating of what the Trinity was, at least a protection of it. And... Uh, <clears throat> I guess it was uh, the apologetics and uh, uh, the the creed that came out of it, and you can think of Athanasius and um, some of the characters that were involved there. Of course, uh, the opposite there would be uh, Arius, right? The Arian controversy came at that time, and it uh, could very easily have swept into that kind of mode, if I can use that word. Uh, um, and so that would be uh, not a belief in the Trinity as we know it. But Athanasius stood firm, and we have it today. So it, it takes um, men of history that we can look back on who've protected what God's truth really is. God uses those uh, men to do that. So we're thankful for biblical revelation, and is what we uh, do tonight here is it's God and the Holy Trinity. There's really uh, only three parts on this one. There were ten on Scripture. We didn't really cover all of those. And I don't really have a textbook. Uh, you can look these up. They're all over the place. They're on the Internet if you want to get it for free. You can, there are books on it. There are study books and such. Um, basically, I'm just going to be flashing up um, everything tonight that, uh, that's in this, this chapter. There's 
one dealing with kind of like the first parts dealing with his attributes, uh, especially the uh, incommunicable attributes. That's the character or the nature of God and God alone. Uh, he does not give those attributes to us, not our character. Uh, also, there are other attributes that uh, he does give that's of him. And then the second one is going to be dealing with uh, his all-sufficiency, which starts there. And then the third deals with the Trinity. And so as we move on to get to that, that will tie in with what was set up by Alan from last week. And so we get a lot of history as this occurs. Uh, if, if you want to go back to where we looked at last uh, well, last week, dealing with the uh, first few hundred years, and uh, what would you think, like, for instance, in the, the Trinity is concerned, and somebody would say, well, okay, you believe in God, but you say Jesus is God. Early Christians would certainly have said that, right? And now they're saying, you have two gods? And you can say, no, we don't have two gods, we have one God. And now they're confused because you're saying, well, there's two gods. You can say, well, actually, we don't believe that, but we believe there are three persons in the Godhead and the other one's the Holy Spirit. And now they're really confused, and they had to be mocking them. It's a strange concept to human thinking. It is a not, not a natural thought. We can think of all sorts of uh, ideas that, uh, from, from human standpoint that maybe can compare to it, but we see that that breaks down very, very quickly. And so we'll be uh, kind of moving into um, the aspect of um, the triune God and some of the terms that were used in history and how we got that concept of what uh, we know today. First one that we're going to be looking at, and um, we'll be reading this. Let's turn to Scripture first. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. And, and in verse 4, he's talking about there were sacrifices to idols, and um, it was almost like when you speak of idolatry, you speak of other gods. Of course, they had belief in, uh, in other gods. And it says in verse 4, Therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know that there is no such thing as an idol. There's really not any other gods. It's, it's, it's a, a figment that comes from Satan, really, isn't it? Um, in their world. And there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, so-called gods, right? Whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, right? Many kings, many rulers, many judges. And of course there are uh, demonic gods, made-up gods that really don't exist at any sense. He calls them the so-called gods. And then when we uh, advance to verse 6, here's what he's getting to. Yet for us, as Christians, there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for Him and one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through Him. And so there is talking about that there is one God, and uh, we're monotheist. Christians believe in one God. Um, at, at the same time, he's saying, when you speak of God, we think of the Father, and we think that we exist for Him. And it's by him and through him. And he speaks of the Lord Jesus Christ. Here you don't necessarily get um, the Holy Spirit 
involved in this triune aspect, although there are many other scriptures that are there that in within one verse or a couple of verses you will see the triune God in that. We'll look at a few of those hopefully. But there he elevates God into uh, who he is in his uh, uh, biblical view. Anyway, why don't we um, start off with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for who you are. Thank you for being the one true God, and you reveal that through Scripture. You revealed it to us um, by the power of your Holy Spirit who regenerated us so that we could know who you are, to grant us faith, to grant us repentance, to give us everything pertaining to life and godliness. And Lord, what life is about is you, giving glory to you and Help us as uh, you open our ears, our eyes, that we can focus upon you and realize that what a privilege that we have to open up a book and then let you teach us. Guide us tonight in uh, a very deep subject. It is about you, knowing you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, um, when you think of that first part, which we're going to read, matter of fact, it, if all of you, can you read that? I actually, it actually can be made a little bit bigger. Um, would you want to do that? We'll have, we'll just, we'll just all read this together. I, we've done it before in in worship. We've done it several times. And this is where it came right out of, and it's it's high and it's holy. Um, Yeah, let's see. Oh, down at the bottom, Alan. Your right-hand corner. I think that should get it. Yeah, that zoomed it up. And there's a left and right. Okay, you're back in Scripture. Go on the right-hand side. There's an arrow. Okay, now, okay, we're at the very front. On the right-hand side, there's an arrow. Yeah, keep on going. And that's number one. There's number two. Scriptures are about, about ten parts to it. Okay, there we go. Back up. Now go to your left. It's number three. Right there, God and the Holy Trinity. Is it now? Now. Yeah. Um, on, down at the bottom, right-hand side. Uh-oh. Okay. If, if you guys want to come on up, maybe just for this reading, we'll just read it the way it is there. I, I thought it might be able to. There we go. Right there. That, that's good, Alan. And, and there, we will have to, it's right in the middle of it, so you, whenever we get down to that last line, I might have you hit the arrow again. It should take us to the rest of it. The Lord our God is but one only living and true God, whose subsistence is in and of himself, infinite in being and perfection whose essence cannot be comprehended by any but himself, a most pure spirit, invisible, without body, parts, or passions, who alone has immortality, dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto, who is immutable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty, every way infinite, most holy, most wise, most free, most absolute, 
working all things according to the counsel of his own immutable and most righteous will for his own glory, most loving, gracious, merciful, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, the rewarder of them that diligently seek him, and with all most just and terrible in his judgments, hating all sin, and who will by no means clear the guilty. All right, Alan, if I can take you and take it back to the the previous page there. Thank you. Thank you very much. And and we'll try to get to that second part pretty shortly here. But um, I think that's high praise. <laughs> I think that is tremendously high thinking of God. If you want a high view of God, that's a good place to start right there. When it said, uh, the Lord our God is but the only one, only living and true God. Uh, we were reading in Corinthians there. You think of the Shema and Deuteronomy. Uh, all over scripture, the the one and the only, the one true God. There there are no other gods. Isaiah 40 through 44, uh, you get just such a tremendous view of, of the only God. Uh, there are certain key words in here that we probably will be touching on tonight where it says subsistence is in and of himself. We'll try to explain that as when we get into that word. Uh, he's infinite in being. That's another key word there. Subsistence, being, perfection, essence. That's another one. When you think of Trinity, all of those words are vital. They're really key in uh, getting a, a kind of a handle uh, a little bit of what the who the Trinity is. Um, he's a most pure spirit. He's invisible. Um, it's interesting without body parts or passions uh, as we as we look at this he's immutable he's immense he doesn't change immutable he's immense he's eternal incomprehensible almighty every way infinite those are called attributes of God but they're incommunicable you guys know what incommunicable is right not for us not for us it's his and his alone uh, we will never be eternal, will we? we? I mean, we will have eternal life and live forever, but we are not eternal in that we've not always been here. Uh, he's incomprehensible, immutable. You guys know what that is, right? Unchanging. Unchanging. He does not change. We change constantly. As we sit here tonight, you are changing right now. <laughs> You're changing because you are a little bit older than you were a few, a few moments ago. <laughs> there are cells that are dying in you constantly. <laughs> We're changing. But God never changes. He's always been the same in all his perfection. And um, so when we see that, I mean, it says immense. We, we can't even begin to think how big he is. Uh, he's incomprehensible. Uh, all that we have is the Word of God, and that takes a lifetime, takes eternity from His Word to know who He is. Uh, almighty, every way infinite, most holy, most wise, most free. He is the one with free will, absolute free will, isn't He? Most absolute, absolute. And then He works all things according to His counsel. 
It's, it's his purpose, his counsel. It's all about him, isn't it? It's a big God. And then there are, you know, it talks about his righteous will, and it's all about his own glory. And then it says, most loving, gracious, merciful, long-suffering. Some of those attributes he uh, gives to us, we can think of the fruit of the Spirit, like long-suffering. There's patience, uh, goodness, and uh, there's forgiveness, and he rewards them. And, of course, on the back end of that, it also talks about he judges the ones who are not uh, of his. So we have the incommunicable attributes, uh, speaking of uh, the, the infinite. Uh, what's that? He is said to be without passion. And you start, you start thinking, well, what's that mean? He doesn't have any feelings? Well, God has holy feelings of love, of wrath, mercy, grace. And so that's why it is down there when we look at that part. He's without body passions. Without body passions, bodily passions. He certainly has emotions, but he has no body parts. When you think of the Mormons, they say that God once was less than what he is now. He keeps on becoming he, he keeps changing. He keeps getting better. He was less than that. He has a body, body parts. And this clearly points out that God does, is actually spirit, isn't he? And he operates in, in that kind of, uh, that's his nature, a pure spirit, not a, uh, just a bodily expression. He's ready to forgive always, He's impeccably opposed to the sin of mankind. And uh, so in this section, we see this majestic, lofty nature of God, don't we? After it started off with Scripture, then it gives us uh, this view of God and the peculiarities of, a, of this divine being. All of these things that we started off with, those attributes, are entirely His. They belong to Him alone. And that is to get a very high, lofty view of God. And then knowing at the same time he's ready to forgive sinful creatures. It's an incredible kind of guy. Uh, if, you know, in theology books, uh, systematic theology, heard it real, went real well on Sunday. Um, there will be a lot more pages than just this little paragraph that we looked at. A lot of systematic theology books will have as many as a, as 100 pages just to enumerate some of the uh, incommunicable attributes. Be that thick just on, on attributes. And, uh, of course, there's a, there's a great uh, work um, on the attributes of God and, and uh, a lot of different authors. Um, there's one is the existence and the attributes of God. It's a two-volume set, um, but, uh, of course, A.W. Pink has a little bitty book, uh, but it's really good, too. There are just tons of really good theology books on that uh, dealing with his attributes. Um, Alan, I might have to borrow you one more time. Yeah. <laughs> Get to the second page is where you're at, which would be the, yeah, following there. Have to keep, probably next week I can just take this laptop and bring it up here maybe and, and uh you won't have to keep going. Yeah, that's good right there. Now, this second one is dealing with the all-sufficiency of God. We've seen his attributes, which are just amazing. 
this is God has everything. He has everything he needs. He has never, ever lacked anything, ever, and never will lack anything. So, that with that concentration on it, you guys want to read the second one here? God having all life, glory, goodness, blessedness, in and of himself is alone in and unto himself all sufficient not standing in need of any creature which he hath made, nor deriving any glory from them, but only manifesting his own glory in, by, unto, and upon them. He is the alone fountain of all being, of whom, through whom, and to whom are all things, and he hath most sovereign dominion over all creatures to do by them, for them, or upon them whatsoever himself pleases. <clears throat> In his sight, all things are open and manifest. His knowledge is infinite, infallible, and independent upon the creature, so as nothing is to him contingent or uncertain. He is most holy in all his counsels, in all his works, and in all his commands. To him is due from angels and men whatsoever worship, service, or obedience as creatures they owe unto the Creator and whatever He is further pleased to require of them. That one might sound familiar too. We've done that many times, haven't we? In, uh, in our worships on Sunday mornings. Uh, a lot of those, they just come out of the confessions. and Sometimes we'll do the catechism questions and such. But you can see, certainly, uh, it's all about Him and he is all sufficient. He has never needed anything. He's totally independent, absolutely dependent upon uh, himself. He, there's no dependence on anybody. He's all sufficient. And so that's what that uh, enumerates here is just uh, his all sufficiency. One uh, thing to note there this was written in the uh, 17th century, the Westminster Confession was. All the other ones proceeded out of that later on. Um, there was a philosopher by the name of Spinoza, and he had some thoughts on God. A lot of philosophers at that time actually would say they believe in God, unlike what philosophers of today probably would be doing. But they would have a very slanted, man-centered view of God. And so they would say, okay, God created the world, and they would even say that. But then here's where the difference would start happening. God created the world because he needed creatures to worship him. <clears throat> you see, he doesn't need anything. He doesn't need us. He doesn't need uh, the world. And so he had a very deficient view of God. He was not all sufficient. So when... This is put together. It's just taking from scriptures, many of the scriptures that we could look at. We uh, probably need need to do that here pretty shortly. But um, God didn't need humans for companionship. <coughs> didn't need anything. All sufficient. He didn't need humans to adore Him and worship Him. 
If he would have, he would have been deficient. And that's really what Spinoza was saying. He, it's, it's like he got lonely, and he had this need, and he wanted people to just lay down and, and bow down and worship him for his, his own sense, like uh, uh, he was insufficient. But that is not true uh, according to Scripture. According to this confession here, he was super sufficient, wasn't he? Yes. I think, um, I think also the average Christian, maybe they wouldn't say it, but they practically um, assume those things. I remember one time talking to a friend and telling him that God loves himself more than he loves anything in creation. And this guy looked at me with a very angry face. I mean, he, he just couldn't understand it. That can make people mad. Yeah. And it certainly does. It really does. Uh, that God would be so selfish mm-hmm. to want to have all the glory, <coughs> and 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 then because they think that we exist so that we can we can get this love from God, and then then He it's almost like He bow down yeah. bows down and worships us. Right. He gives us everything that we want, and and He's dependent upon us. So, yeah, certainly. So. I know there'll probably be a lot of things running together, at least for a little while here. I hope it's not all repeat, or I hope it uh, maybe it helps. Because uh, when we did this, we didn't know that we were going to be running into at that time. I didn't know systematic theology was coming up. I had it picked out, and Barb would know back uh, many many weeks ago. <laughs> He's not going to force himself on you. Yeah, I, they they add that to a um, disclaimer, you know, um, so you don't feel too bad. But uh, so how do you uh, like? What would be the alternative uh, evangelistically to, to to say to people like, well, what does God want from me? You know, it's sort of like. That question almost has to be asked. Like, uh, you want you want me to believe in him? What does God want me to believe? You know, is there a good way of putting it to somebody? Not sure I understand your question. Well, sorry. So, okay, so so if you uh, there's one like there's uh, an average Joe uh, approach to someone who is like, oh Jesus loves you. And he wants a relationship. Or there's the alternative. What is the alternative? Uh, as far as like the the more truthful yeah, well, it's, representation. Yeah, that that's God's. good. Yeah, because it starts with a holy God. Right. The holiness of God is the most important aspect that people <laughs> must see. And he said, well, how can they know the holiness of God? And, of course, that's where the law comes in. He is holy. He's the one that gave the law. The law 
uh, actually shows man in his sin. And, you know, God does offer the invitation, but here's what it is. Man must see that God is holy, that they are not. They have a need, and their need is to have their sinfulness taken away from them. And, of course, the law, you know, that starts with God, um, very first commandment, of course, the second command. The very first table is dealing with uh, who God is and what he's about. And, of course, it, it, the, the second table is and then this is how you treat your neighbor. Um, so, but to see God, that he's the only God. And he does demand perfection, which no human being can meet that. We can't offer God anything. Once they see the depravity of man and the holiness of God, they cry out and see their need. And it's amazing that God gives that invitation. And, uh, of course, you know, he uses a, a calling. And, uh, of course, what, what is man's, man's chief need is what? To give glory to God. Uh, God's chief end is that he get glory, you know, as far as his relationship with man. God is most uh, glorified, right, by us whenever we enjoy him. And really that's what glorifying God is, is enjoying God for who he is, for what scripture says. When we enjoy God, then we are glorifying God in, I think, the most visible way. Uh, that, so therefore it focuses on him. It does show our need, and he then he shows how he meets it through the person of Christ. Does that help a little bit there? Yeah. Um, You're talking about the so modern evangelism of the day, which right. is very weak. Yeah. What an appropriate answer to that question then, when he said, what does God want you to do, or what does God want? Would an appropriate answer to that person be, well, he wants us to believe in him, but that's... That's different from needing us to believe in him. He's not going to force himself on us, like you said earlier. But he wants us to believe in him. Is that inappropriate? Is that appropriate? Yeah. Well, you know, in um, when you have John the Baptist, um, what what does he what does he cry out? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. When Jesus started preaching the gospel, what what was it? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. When Peter preached that great message uh, at Pentecost, people said, what must we do? Repent, right? Matter of fact, go go there to Acts chapter 2. He's saying the same thing. There's a repentance. What what does that mean? It means, well, there there has to be a change, um, not only in our minds about who God is, but also in in uh, our actions, our, our whole being. There has, and, of course, only God even can, can grant that. But after he preached that sermon and, and showed how Christ was resurrected for this, and he is Lord and Christ, this one whom you crucified, and they cry out then, what shall we do? And Peter says in verse 38, Repent, each of you. Be baptized. Be placed into the person of Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And, uh, of course, he shows this promise is for you and, and people far off. Uh, so there's hope. There's good news. And he, and he starts with repentance. There's, there's sin involved. 
There's a holy God. Look what he's done. And uh, so Peter uh, keeps that same message going as what has been, and that's the church's message, really, that people need to to uh, to repent. It's like the church's altar call, but it's backwards. <laughs> yeah. The sinners are saying, what must we do? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> I'm going to break in here and say I think that there's something lacking in, in uh, the response to, to Nick Loach's question. I, and I've wrestled with this a little bit over the last week. I've been I've been reading a good um, writing by Andrew Murray, and um, to say that God longs to have a relationship with us is is not wrong. He does long for that. He is He loves us, and and that's that's the thing. He loves us. But we have to be loved by him and love him on his terms, not on ours. I think that's that's maybe well. That's what qualifies that. It's on his terms. But to think that we need to honor him and glorify him and obey him because he is fearsome and and omnipotent and he and, and it's true. It's true. We do, but. To take the love out of it is to leave it like a cold obedience, a cold, something cold. You mean With like that, in an outward religious mode, yes, right? Yes, and and as far as, as us being holy enough, we can't be. Not without the Holy Spirit, we can't be. We can't be acceptable. We'll never be perfect this side of heaven. We can't be acceptable to him on our terms. If we wait for that... If we long for that before we approach him, we'll we'll be chasing chasing the wind. We'll just be chasing the wind because it's not going to happen. We have to believe that he loves us and longs for that relationship with us. And we have to believe he is willing to be in that relationship with us. We can't be like whoever, whatever prophet it was in the Old Testament that, that said the people were, were saying, wherefore does he love us? That was so sinful. That's just a slap in the face of God because he has done everything good for us. And he didn't have to. That's the truth of it. He didn't have to. He doesn't need it, but he wants it. He longs for us, and he longs for that relationship with us because he loves us. I I used to look at my, my girls, and I still do when I think about it, and I think... I love them so much, and I know we all have, all of us who have had children have looked at our children, and not in the times that we were angry maybe, but overall, it's like, we love them so much, and then I thought, but God loves them more than I do, and that just blows me away, how can that be, because I can't imagine loving my girls more than I do, but he does. And it, it's taking me a while, a while. I feel sometimes like I've been 40 years in the wilderness since I've, I've accepted Christ, or since he accepted me when I was like 16, I'm 56 now. It's like I, I want to enter into that close, close, loving relationship. And he longs that for me. 
and, and once I can get that to sink in and it's going to be slow, that's, that's what's going to make it all <coughs> right. That's, that's what we're after. I, I, and I think what Mick is, is saying there in, in the vernacular of our times, what has happened in the modern church, and yeah, they're saying some things that are right, but do we start in that sense, or is that is our only message, God loves you, and he's got a perfect plan for your life? Well, then you're de- you have to define love and, and, and hate. Right. <laughs> and I'm not saying what you're saying is wrong. I'm not saying that at all. What I'm saying is anybody who's thinking that they're going to, take God on their own terms because well, that's, that's your key point right there is and we do we want to know him and and we want to be committed to this because now it's on his terms that's the greatest enjoyment rather than making it up our own what can happen we can take extremes both ways like if it just comes out where it's um, um, hard hitting and uh, God is there, you know, it's almost like to, to make you scared. Uh, there is a sense of having a holy fear of God, but that is also the wrong way too. We still have to show the bad news, the good news, show the grace of God uh, that's there. And, uh, of course, that's what that first paragraph that we were talking about, where it talked about where he, he is these incommunicable attributes and at the same time then it dropped down talked about his love his compassion his mercy his grace and all of that into one we, you know it's we can't take god on one end and and uh, extrapolate just from that and then leave the other one it it takes all of that 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 balance but and at the same time and, and and there's the end up right there <laughs> right at the end of one and, and and so there's where the, the repentance comes in. He loves one so much that he would offer repentance. And that's what happened to me and anybody else who trusts in God, that he would he would grant that to us. So, yeah, very, very good. Um, as for God wanting glory, some people have termed that as he's a cosmic egotist. And it's all about his own ego. Uh, the only thing is, that kind of thought is really not understanding God and his utter sufficiency uh, that he is. He doesn't need adoration of men, although he does demand it. Now, that's another odd thing. He he doesn't have to have it, but yet he demands that. Uh, and, and yet, a creature cannot contribute anything to him. And... <laughs> Is God any happier today than he was before the foundations of the world? Because now he's had, he has people and there are millions of people who glorify him. Is he happier than he was before he created? If he doesn't change, he's the same in that sense, isn't he? Uh, but he, it's amazing that he wants us to live for his glory and you say, well, what's the purpose in that? Well, God is sufficient in himself alone. He makes the creature for his glory. And even though it's for his sake, really, who is it for? If he's not lacking anything, he's not going to add to that. It's for our sake. It's for our ultimate pleasure, enjoyment in God. 
And that's how we can most glorify God when we seek Him out and enjoy all of the good things that He offers in here. Um, so anyway, that's kind of an eye, the idea of Him being the uh, absolute uh, sufficient one. I was thinking of um, Romans 11 for this paragraph. Romans 11, verse 34. At the end of a sequence of just amazing theology that he's had for 11 chapters and the way that he boils that section up. Well, verse 33 starts with this. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who became his counselor? Or who has first given to him, that it might be paid back to him again? For from him, and through him, and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. I've got a feeling the confession took a lot out of this section right here. Did you notice some things that were uh, repeating? This, This gives us... And it always starts with God. And then we can see how he then works it to us. It's amazing that he would allow us in on his things. And yet at the same time, how can we understand all the depth of all this? Incredible. Okay, now we go to the brief section here that it has. In this divine and infinite being, there are three subsistences. The Father, the Word or Son, and the Holy Spirit of one substance. So we've got subsistences, think of that substance, power, and eternity, each having the whole divine essence, another key word. So we have substance, subsistence, essence, yet the essence undivided. The Father is of none, neither begotten nor proceeding. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father. The Holy Spirit proceeding from the Father and the Son, all infinite, Without beginning, therefore, but one God, who is not to be divided in nature and being, but distinguished by several peculiar relative properties and personal relations, which doctrine of the Trinity is the foundation of all our communion with God and comfortable dependence on Him. Thank you, Alan. Okay, um, that's dealing with the Trinity. It has that one little paragraph, and then it moves on. <laughs> after that's um, some of the catechism that Zach put in there right after that, then, which is really good. But this little brief section on the, the Trinity, when we look at that, we're thinking of three persons in one. There's one essence. There's one substance. This doctrine is considered to be gibberish by all the cults, Jehovah's Witnesses have called it that. The founder of Jehovah's Witnesses said this is gibberish. Um, I think we have to warn ourselves when we talk about the way, uh, you know, who God is and the way that he has revealed himself to uh, the being that he is. Um, It's rather baffling sometimes, uh, some of doctrines that are like the Trinity because the natural man cannot understand it, and even the spiritual man only goes so far with this. 
and uh, it um, develops into mainly a, a mystery, but it's something that we must believe. We saw the Athanasius, and, and with the Athanasian Creed, it, it, it really came down to a Christian has to believe in the Trinity. Otherwise, he's doing injustice to what the truth of the Word of God says, which reveals so many scriptures on the, the triune being. If you're a monotheist, you believe in one God. We read that earlier. The first section dealt with that, didn't it? We looked at the scripture in 1 Corinthians. And we also see that not only is he one, but he's three. And here's where the Jehovah's Witness is going to come, going to come in. And all the I've never seen a cult who has believed in the Trinity, uh, uh, at least out, outside of uh, this. Uh, they have their own gibberish and their own making. But um, the, the idea that he is one and he's three, if you're monotheistic, it's like, how can you say that he's one and now you're saying he's three? And they, they'll make fun of you. you know, that, that doesn't make any sense. Well, by our own thinking and without Scripture and knowing what Scripture is really saying throughout, it doesn't make sense, does it? Have you ever tried to describe it to an unbeliever? Have you ever tried to describe it to somebody that's a Christian? Have you had really trying to develop something in your own mind of thinking this Trinity? There, there's nothing like the Trinity, although he, uh, he is that. And the Jehovah's Witnesses would say that the Father is God. They will say that. But it's equally clear, clear that Jesus also said this. You've seen me, you have seen the Father. I and the Father are one. And that really means we are of the same essence. We are the same Essence, the the substance, oneness. Is that not in their Bible Well, they they do have their own version. Um, but the thing is, you can go to many of their own scriptures and show to them that right here is the Triune God. Now we have scriptures. Let's say, I think First Corinthians thirteen would be really good if you happen to be in First Corinthians already. If not, you can just turn. Turn there, you'll get there. Uh, John, it's Second Corinthians, I'm sorry. I, I know John 1, 1 in their Bible. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God. There you go. And now they've turned him into a second God, which they don't believe in. Now they have a problem with that. Well, he's a lesser God. And they say there's only one God. And now they, they have all sorts of problems, don't they? You're always going to run into that if they use Scripture, but they had to change that just add a little word that's not there J.R. Manti a great Greek scholar uh, they tried to use in their uh, New Testament since he was such good good at Greek he never uh, would have put his name on there but they did they put his name on there and uh, he was uh, very upset about it because he saw that their view was very biased they had put that in it was it was not in the uh, original Greek yeah um in 2 Corinthians 13, the very last verse, matter of fact, verse 14, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. One verse, you have Christ who is the Son, 
God, whenever you see it spoken of that way, it's talking about the God the Father and the Holy Spirit. That's 2 Corinthians 13, 14. You see the triune God there. That's a trinity found just in one verse. If you go to Matthew 28, 19, this is the Great Commission, by the way. Jesus gets all the disciples together for his ascension after his resurrection there. It says, Go therefore, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And the way that that is done in the Greek, it cannot be but three persons there cannot be saying that there's a modalism dealing with the Father who changes to be the Son at that time or whenever the Holy Spirit is needed, then He goes into that. This is talking about three uh, persons. And, of course, in, in the study of the Trinity, uh, persons is, is used in uh, trying to help understand, explain what it's about. Uh, how the confession articulates this is very helpful uh, one little small paragraph. Um, God is three as to person. As to substance, essence, He's one. Um, we know that the Father is not the Son. And the Father is not the Holy Spirit. And there we get into that modalism and, and uh, uh, Arianism, the things that were going on in the very early church. I said, what, what's so important about history? That ha- If you were... Uh, a Christian, how are you going to explain to people who God is as they get to thinking, well, you you act like there are three gods. And um, liberalism, uh, Unitarianism uh, has caricatured this whole doctrine of the Trinity uh, to deceive many. And they'll say that God is one, monotheism, but when you think of Him as the Creator, you call him Father. When you think of him as Redeemer, now you call him the Son. And when you think of him as the Sanctifier, then you call him the Holy Spirit. So in their theology, there's only one person with three names. That's absolute heresy. That is never what Scripture ever shows. Uh, and so, but they're saying there's one person in the Godhead, three different names. The confession doesn't portray that at all, what we just read there in that little paragraph. Uh, not the same person. You know, there's one essence, but there's three personalities. Um, me, for instance, uh, I have the role of being a husband. I'm also a father. I'm also a teacher. Okay, there's three, but I'm not three persons. I'm still just one person. That's the danger of modalism. That can be understood. Humans can get that. But God goes so far beyond that. And that's why people really have trouble. If they can't believe what the Scripture says about it, what else do they not believe about who God is? They want it narrowed down where they can define, as Audrey was saying, that they define what who God is or define what love is rather than taking it for what, what does Scripture say about Him. Hey, Alan, what was your word from 
Uh, civilians. Civilians. Um, his oneness, he, he's one, right, pertains to his divine essence. That, that word is, is used so much when they tried to help us put this in a sense that we can at least put Scripture together and say it in, in, a, in a quick, a short amount of time. Um, salvation, who does it come from? God. Who else does it come from? Well, just God. But you have God the Father involved in salvation. We have um, God the Son dealing with our salvation. Who uh, He's the one that atones for sin, right? The Father is sending the Son, and then the Son atones for the sin. Then you have the Holy Spirit who applies that atonement to us. He regenerates us. So the whole Trinity is involved in that. The whole Trinity was involved in creation. The oneness there is uh, just uh, amazing. And of course, the Son will then present the kingdom of, uh, to God that they may be all in all. We need not fully understand the Trinity because we cannot, uh, don't have to fully understand it to be saved. Um, it's impossible to understand fully about it. But here's what the Athanasian Creed stated. No one can be saved who denies that we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity. Did you get that? Now, there are terms just out of time. There are terms that articulate the Trinity. By the way, when we get into that, there is such a thing as contradiction and that's what the cults would be saying that we con- we are in contradiction when we say three and one right there's a difference between contradiction and mystery this highness of God we've looked at the formula one God three persons you have to have precision in the language. So what did our early church fathers do? And then later on, as the Reformation uh, had started and they put a confession together, what did they do? We keep, we keep using the word person, right? One God, three persons. Um, Tertullian, early church father, he had a background in law, and he came up with the word persona. And coming from law, he used a, a, a legal reference. And in an estate, there are possessions in an estate, right? So he used this kind of idea since he came from that thought. So the possessions were known as the persona. Well, it developed a little bit further, uh, went from the Latin to the Greek in drama. You would have an actor, and he would care it put on a mask, right? And he would play a part by using that mask. He also would have another mask and he would put on. And now this actor is playing a different role, a different part, a different mask here. They're, they're called the twin mask. Have you ever seen those? You're probably familiar with that maybe. It's a frown or it's a smile. Probably putting those in, in, in your thoughts there. They were called persona. Person, persona. The church developed, the concept of the Trinity developed, it, it's, such, it's so intriguing to try to get a little bit of the depth of the Trinity. 
and uh, in the Greek, uh, hypostasios, uh, came to work in it. There are three really important words, and I, I don't know how I can get through all of this, but it's really about time to stop. The, the three words are essence, and wouldn't you know it, I knew that would happen. It always happens. And it gets worse. And I bet you the same thing will happen to this. Ah, we're going to go orange tonight. Essence, existence. That's right. The orange is doing What? Oh, okay. I guess it is right now, right? Um, uh, and this word subsistence. And we really kind of get into an R.C. Sproul. I know this may get, uh, I can probably almost lose you because it kind of gets philosophically, but this is how our Trinity got developed and how the church understands it and why they use certain terms because you don't see that in Scripture where it says one God, three persons, do you? So it takes people over course of time to develop this thought, and that's why we can go around saying something, and it, and it helps a little bit. Um, those three words are, are really important. There's, there's also homoousios. Homo actually means same, doesn't it? And we're dealing with essence. There was another word that they really had... Um, and that one letter changes things this means the same essence this means similar essence like in the person of Christ one person there two natures right uh, they would say that Jesus is similar in the essence, but not the same. And so therefore, this gets canceled out. That gets into, again, cultism, and, and uh, of course it goes against uh, uh, biblical theology and such. But um, orthodoxy is saying, this is what this is. This is of the same essence. Substance. Stuff. Okay, when when you say essence, what is the essence? What's well, it's the reality of what what that is? Um, being usios means to be, to be, or being. Okay, God really is a, the being. He is to be being or essence stuff. I keep repeating that, but that's. That is what's so, so key. He is the being. And you get into uh, metaphysics. The, the philosophers were trying to term all this, and they wanted the ultimate reality. They wanted, they wanted to get to know what is real, what doesn't ever change, that is unchanging. The real essence, the usios, is what they were after. That, that's the Greek, that's the language, but to get to that language, it, it helps to know that and see how this develops in, into our English. Plato came along and made a distinction between being and becoming. 
God is the being. We are becoming. We're not becoming God, like Mormons would say, but we are changing, right? Of course, we will be glorified, but God is the being. He's the one that doesn't change. He's always been. He is the being or the essence. And so it was like they had a, a lot of the philosophers had this whatever is, is. Well, it finally had to develop into whatever is, is changing. God doesn't change, but whatever is, is always changing. It's basic. Whatever we see, even if it's a rock, okay, it's in the process of changing, right? We're changing. We're, we're becoming. Uh, and you are a little bit different than you were when we first started out tonight. You're a little bit older. And as years go by, you get even older. You're, you're changing, right? Um, for something becoming, there has to be a being. There has to be a prior being. And uh, so becoming, for, for becoming, it, it has, it, it's really existence. God is being, or essence, we are in existence. And so what, what does this have to do with, with the triune God? Um, well, there's being, there's becoming, and then, of course, Plato said a non-being. What's non-being? Nothing. A non-being. We are between being and non-being. We are becoming. Well, how does this relate? How does, it, how does this relate to Trinity? Es essence, we've seen as God, right? We are existence. Um, and existence, what's ex mean? E-X. When you see a sign that says exit, what does that mean? Out. Uh, existence is dealing with X is out. And the rest of that word is dealing to stand out of. We stand out of the being is the idea. We are in existence. But there's a subsistence. What does sub mean? Under. Subway, right? God is, and this is how we get to those three persons. This is how it gets back to this. God is one. He's a one essence, right? And, but all three aspects, are, as far as the persons are concerned, uh, are of the of the same essence, but yet they're they're different. Uh, they're distinct, and and that's how we get into the word uh, hypostasis which transferred to the Greek means the same thing. Hupo, under, stasis, to stand under. When you have the substance, which is the essence, there's a standing under that. This is where the, the persons get uh, into play. It's the persons that, have the, uh, that are of the same essence which is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They're, they're distinct, aren't they? But they are what? One. Um, one essence, 
And this is what the, this is what the church said. This is finally what they, they developed. The church said, in God there is one essence, but three subsistences. Or what? As we know it, three persons. That's so the the way you define person today. That's why it can be confusing to people when you finally get it translated to English and you say persons, even though it's related to that. Uh, this uh, it's it, that's what confuses people up. But uh, there are three persons who stand under the essence, the very essence of God. They're part of the essence. They're the same essence. They have three peculiar um, attributes to distinguish. And, of course, there, that's where we get the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. And they're distinct. One essence, three subsistences. That's about as close as we can get to articulate the doctrine. Now, I know I've totally confused you. Exactly. Exactly. When you think of the two natures uh, of Christ, right? The epistatic union. And so that's the same Greek word um, that would have been taken from the Latin subsistence, hypostasis. Anyway, that's um, a little bit of thought, how it derived. That's how we finally got to... And the easiest way we can say about the Trinity is usually people say he's one, one essence, but three persons. Anyway, human existence. We're becoming. God is the essence. He's the being. He is the stuff. He's everything, right? Anyway, we will uh, stop there. And I think thinking on God can be really deep. <laughs> it well, thank you, Nandor. That that uh, that's encouraging because I I feel like I've got a lot of blank faces out there, and, and it is it's a little difficult. And we're not trying to get into philosophy, but that's how the terminology got to where it's at. That's why I had to say that. We can say, well, we just say that automatically. Well, that's how it got there. And yes, there were there were some philosophers like Plato and other that played into this, but it finally developed into the Westminster Confession, which the whole body of Christ would endorse if they're true believers on on the, the triune God. And using those very same words that we used, subsistence and existence and essence, did you remember seeing those words in that paragraph? So to look at it, that's what they used. They went back all the way back to the early church fathers, and then, of course, a lot of these terms were used then when Arius... Had, came up with his view the, of what a trinity really was or wasn't. And then, of course, um, Athanasius then stuck up for what truth was. Because he took a beating, but uh, it was well worth it because this is with us today. So anyway, don't want to bore some of you. <laughs> At the same time, want to give you some... 60 years ago, I didn't have to know any of this. <laughs> and that's right you don't have to know all that um, but at the same time I th- it, sometimes it's, it's good to have a little bit of the history 
on it. And, of course, we look at the Scripture and we know that it's right here. Uh, if nobody knew anything else, um, the Second Corinthians, where it mentions the three there, or the Matthew passage that we just read, uh, and so often where you just have two or three verses where you'll see the whole triune God involved in salvation and uh, dealing with His glory and what it's about. Anyway, God is quite the subject. And it should make us want to praise Him even more. I had a little section dealing with with love and what uh, actually Audrey was coming out there with, but uh, don't uh, don't have enough time for that. Uh, but I will say, if He were not love, then He couldn't be personal. If there's not a Trinity, He couldn't be personal. He couldn't love if there's no other. Yeah. And within the Trinity there was there's perfect unity, perfect love, always has been from past all the way eternity back, all the way into eternity future. And that by looking at the definition of what how God defines himself in love, that's incredible. And he shares that with us and that we too not only experience it from him but then we love him back and as we love him back the first four commandments then the second table then we start desiring to love our neighbor love God love your neighbor and that personal aspect that basis for love is found in this one being that is so unified let's pray Father we thank you for your word your truth it is a difficult subject, and we're called to just believe you and who you are, and, and um, there are a lot of big terms that you give us in your truth, or maybe words that people have used to try to help uh, define it in a sense, but it comes down to seeing you for who you are, believing it, and dwelling more upon those great high thoughts of you. Thank you for this evening in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, we thank you once again for joining us. We pray that this message would serve to edify you. And we say goodbye until next time. May the Lord bless you and keep you and make His face shine upon you. Until next time.